In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, that is what Thomas called Jesus. And he said rightly, for so he is. Much earlier, as Matthew records in his 16th chapter, it was right before Jesus first predicted his death and resurrection, that he asked his disciples who they said he was. Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the same answer that we just heard from Thomas, isn't it? Peter also answered well. This is how Jesus responded to him at that time. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus said he would die and rise, and he did. We considered this last Sunday. Jesus said he would give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he did. We consider this today. We also see how these two are connected and must remain so. Jesus' resurrection and the office of the keys. We will use these words, which we just heard from Matthew 16, to demonstrate this. Flesh and blood did not reveal to Peter what Peter confessed. The Father did. When Jesus appeared among his disciples a second time, the Sunday after Easter, Thomas saw flesh and blood, and so he believed. But even then, it was the Father who revealed to him what he needed to see in order to make that confession. Jesus could have said the same thing to Thomas. My Father, who is in heaven, has revealed this to you. And indeed, he as much as said that when he blessed those who have not seen and yet believe. For even to Thomas, as to us, it is the Father who required this man to lay down his life. It was the Father who raised him again. Furthermore, it was the Father who, by raising Jesus, openly accepted Jesus' atoning passion and death. And even now, it was the Father who was revealing himself in this flesh and blood man now risen from the dead. For it was the Father's peace that Jesus was bestowing. It was peace that Jesus won, to be sure. It was Jesus' peace, most certainly. But it was peace with the Father. The peace Jesus gave revealed the Father. But it was peace with the Father. And this is because Jesus had so fully and entirely made satisfaction for the sin of the whole world. He had reconciled the Father to the world. Our Lord's resurrection was the justification of the whole world. We call it objective. Objective justification is the phrase that has been coined to teach this great biblical truth. And this is what it means. It means that God's justification of the world, his declaration that the whole world is righteous in his sight, is objective. And universal. Sinners do not activate God's forgiveness by believing. 
They believe what is already objectively true, whether they believe it or not. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? So also, while we were still unbelievers, God declared us righteous in his Son when he raised him from the dead. This is objective justification. And so we must also talk about subjective justification. Subjective justification is when the sinner actually believes it. When he personally receives what was true before he believed it. When he comes to accept this great truth as worth believing. And by faith is found in Christ. This subjective justification relies on objective justification. There must be a death and resurrection of Jesus that actually caused something in order for us to be baptized into it. As many of us, as we're baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. That's what St. Paul says in Galatians 3.27. And we put on a living Christ. We put on a Christ who died and buried our sin. We put on his righteousness because he rose with nothing but forgiveness for you. We are clothed in Christ by faith in what baptism actually gives. It gives what is already accomplished. Our faith is not the final ingredient in salvation. No. Faith receives salvation. Already full and free. And even right now offered to all. St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 4 that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Because of, he says. The cause of Christ's resurrection was that God had so completely accepted his atoning death that he declared the whole world righteous in him. His life is literally ours. Jesus lives only insofar as the Father has prepared all that is needed for us to live as well. This sure drives home how dear a sacrifice his death was, doesn't it? He bound his eternal life not just to the promise that he would do what he did, but that what he did would mean life for us. He literally died so that we might live. His son became so one with us. He made our sin his own. He made our eternal fate his own. We are not justified because Jesus rose. That is not strong enough and clear enough language. And it's not the language St. Paul uses in Romans 4. No, it's the other way around. Jesus was raised because we are justified. Or as St. Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, the same argument. Jesus rose because the dead rise. Jesus' resurrection objectively depends on how the Father now regards you and the whole world of sinners. He is propitious. He is reconciled. He forgives and stands ready and eager with his grace and favor to accept all who turn to him with broken and contrite hearts. That is why he raised Jesus. It is because God forgave you. The objective reality that Jesus' resurrection reveals therefore, must now be made known to sinners so that they might believe and be found in him. It is by believing this great truth that we benefit 
from this new reality that Christ has brought into effect. It is forfeited only by calling God a liar, only by unbelief. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the rock upon which Jesus said he would build his church. It is the subjective confession of objective truth. My Lord and my God, this is the rock upon which Jesus carries through on what he said he would do. It too is the subjective confession of objective truth. But you are not saved by somebody else's subjective confession of objective truth. You are saved by learning in your own subject to make that confession, to believe it. Today we hear of that solid foundation, that bedrock upon which Christ even now is at work building upon. We hear that Christ is risen and that he appeared to his disciples so that our personal faith as individual subjects might rely upon this objective historical truth. Jesus called him Peter, whose name had been Simon. Petros is the word used. Peter means stone. Jesus did not say that he would build his church upon Peter. As the Pope has claimed, no, he said, upon this rock, this Petra, he uses a different word. He said Petra, not Petros. If our Lord is guilty of a pun, it would not be the first time. But it is only a pun. He is surely not guilty of giving his dearly bought bride over to any other suitor. Jesus is a jealous God. He did not build his church upon the man who could not watch and pray one hour, the man who tried to live by the sword, the man who would deny him three times and require great mercy for his cowardice. Nor did he build his church on any preacher's eloquence, persuasiveness, or any person's holiness. No, although Peter's weakness might all fit the description of the Pope or any other mere sinner, yet it was not upon Petros that Jesus built his church, it was upon the Petra, the firm foundation set by God himself and revealed by the Father alone. It was on Peter's confession that we hear repeated by Thomas today that Jesus would build his church. It is a confession that the Father reveals to us and enables us also to make. He does this not by revealing flesh and blood to us, but by delivering to us what the flesh and blood Son of God has won for us. It is a message. It is an efficacious proclamation. Peace to you, Jesus said. Here is the firm foundation upon which we stand, upon which the church is built. It is the peace that Jesus won and that Jesus now gives. It is peace with God that we receive by faith in the forgiveness of sins. The gates of hell cannot prevail. They cannot withstand this confession because God has revealed it to us. The gates of hell. Now isn't this, and haven't you often thought that this is kind of an interesting thing to say? Think about it. Wouldn't we more likely say that this or that won't prevail against the gates of heaven? Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But when and how exactly do gates 
try to prevail against something. Gates just, they open and shut, right? They let people in and out, right? What exactly is hell doing with its gates? By which we should suppose it is trying to prevail against the church. Well, plain old competition explains this one. As Luther said, wherever God builds his church, the devil builds a chapel next door. And his gates are bigger and flashier because his way is broader and easier. And many go through it. It is a way to destruction. The gates of hell seek to prevail against the church of Christ by advertising a broader and easier way to those whom Jesus has redeemed. It is through misbelief, despair, and other great shame and vice that he entices so many customers, so to speak, and aims to lure Christ's sheep, and if it were possible, damn even the elect. He teaches false doctrine. He offers no peace with God. He promises pleasure, but only gives pain and shame. As we focus this morning, particularly on that first evening of Easter and the next week, with the depressed disciples hiding in fear of persecution, we will especially address the devil's goal of leading sinners into despair. For this is where both misbelief and other great shame and vice lead. Despair. This is the devil's goal. The disciples did not believe the report that he was risen. There is no greater shame than this, than to call God a liar. All objective truth of God being reconciled to sinners is rejected when Christ's resurrection is disbelieved. They weren't doubting the subjective opinion of women. They were rejecting the objective truth upon which those women's faith was established. There was nowhere to go for his disciples, therefore, but through the gates of hell, because they were stuck in their sin. But then, their gate, without opening the door, came to them. He who calls himself the door of the sheepfold appeared to them. Yes, his way is narrow. Yes, his way is difficult. Yes, few find it, as Jesus says in Matthew 7. But he is the good shepherd who himself finds his lost sheep. He appears to the ten, and he appears to Thomas, and he appears to you. He seeks you. The way he took to find you is harder than the way he leads you through. You know that. The way he opens is narrow, but the door that leads the way in is the message of universal scope for all people. Yes, he is the only way to the Father. But he is the way. Because he is the truth and the life. And he opens the way to bring you in by speaking truth that gives life. Yes, the way is difficult. It is difficult because of the temptations of your own sinful flesh. But the shepherd shepherds his sheep and leads them with his rod and his staff. He comforts them. 
We fear no evil because he is with us. Wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in our midst. To be gathered in his name means that we are gathered to receive what he alone can give, as we are right now. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Peace to you. He gives peace to God. With God, he gives access to us, to God. He is the door. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is where we find peace with God. This is where we find entrance into heaven, to the throne of God's grace. It is a fulfillment of what Jesus promised in Matthew 16 and repeated in Matthew 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He fulfills that here today in John 20. Whosever sins you forgive are forgiven, and whosever sins you retain are retained. Jesus is present in his absolution. He is with his church. It is where the narrow door opens with such outstretched arms that he embraces the whole world and invites all sinners. He is here to forgive sinners and give them peace with God. He overcomes the world by saving the world. We overcome the world by believing in him. But the devil broadens his door by inverting this absolution. He looses the impenitent and binds the brokenhearted, but not in the way that Jesus does, not with bandages, but with chains. His gates swing open, and out of them flood sinners who think they have found freedom in their slavery to sin. With their licentiousness, they show themselves to be unconstrained and at liberty to do what they will, to be what they will. But their end is the same. It is death. It is despair and judgment. Those who flood out of the gates of hell believing the lie are those who will eventually be dragged back in, having died in unbelief. But many are dragged in while still living. These are they who fall for the devil's temptation to despair once they have fallen for his temptation to sin. As I said, Satan's true goal and purpose in his temptations, both to misbelief and vice, is to bring you to despair. He wants us to despair of God's mercy. He wants us to believe that our sins are too great for God to forgive. The devil would like to claim the same prerogative as God. He likes to claim, he likes to claim that whatever is bound on earth is bound in hell. But that is not true. He has no such power. Jesus said that whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven, not hell. Whatever is bound on earth is never for the sake of binding in hell, but for the sake of leading us to repentance while we still live here. As surely as the absolution truly looses and opens heaven, so the binding key truly retains sins and closes heaven. To one who does not repent of his sin and seek to stop living in them, 
Jesus commands his sins be retained. God will hold them against him. Jesus says so, but it is not to pay any homage to hell. It is the opposite. Jesus binds us in order to loose. He retains in order to forgive. He condemns unbelief in order to elicit repentance and faith. He shows us our weakness and guilt in order to give us his victory. His absolution can only be received by faith, so he discourages the faith we put in ourselves in order to strengthen the faith that he works toward himself by giving us his Holy Spirit. The power which Jesus gave his disciples to absolve the penitent and retain the sins of the impenitent as long as they do not repent is power that Jesus gave to his whole church. It is the possession of all who have the Holy Spirit. This church power is exercised by those whom Jesus calls and sends to you to publicly carry out the office of the keys. Pastors are called through the church, but they are not hired. Jesus calls pastors through Christians who desire what Jesus gave pastors to preach. The binding and loosing keys are the basis for everything pastors do as ministers of Christ. The absolution is the basis for all preaching. It is the basis of all teaching, of Christian doctrine, of all reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. It is the basis because it is the goal. And this is because the resurrection of Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built. The church's exercise of the keys can be summed up in the preaching of the law and the gospel. The law teaches us our sins against God and what we deserve because of them. The gospel teaches us that Jesus bore those sins and that the Father has raised him up to open to us the way of eternal life. When Jesus first promised the keys to his church, in Matthew 16, which we opened with, the devil tempted Peter, like many preachers have since done, to misuse these keys. For immediately after Jesus promised to give the keys, he began also to promise that he would suffer and die and rise again the third day. Peter misused the keys by trying to prevent Jesus from dying and rising again. This shall never happen to you. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Thank God it did happen to him, Peter. It did. It is the rock upon which we stand. It is the rock that Jesus brought you back onto when you were drowning in tears of sorrow. It is the rock that still stands through the word of peace he sent you to preach in his name. It is the word of peace we still hear today, which Jesus gave also to Thomas. Satan would still try to separate our Lord's resurrection from our Lord's absolution. And this is the basis for every misuse of the keys. And in many and various ways, the devil often succeeds in separating our Lord's Easter victory from what is preached from Christian pulpits. 
He does so by the false teaching that one may remain secure in his sin and still be saved. That is not true. He does so by the false teaching that one must do more than believe in order to be saved, or that one must believe by his own power. And that is not true. Both these lies are an offense to many who are weak. But for our sake, dear Christians, since we are weak too, it is, offense, it is an offense to Jesus. He himself rebukes the devil as often as he gives you his peace. He himself rebukes Satan and keeps him far away from you as often as he causes his gospel to be preached to poor and frightened sinners who desire to know a gracious God. And we have him. We have the one and only who has joined himself so thoroughly to our flesh and blood that his life depends on our salvation. As we sing, shall I fear or could the head rise and leave his members dead? No, too closely am I bound unto him by hope forever. Faith's strong hand the rock has found, grasped it and will leave it never. Even death now cannot part from its Lord, the trusting heart. We are bound to Christ through faith. We trust in what is objective and in each one of us as dear subjects of the Lord Jesus. He creates a confidence which he calls victory that overcomes the world because our faith is in the forgiveness of sins bound to Christ's death and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.